Good morning to all of you. It's a delight to be with you here in Cape Girardeau. I've been here one other time in my life. This was to another church in the area here several years back, and it's uh, good to be back here again with you and uh, share, share with you this morning uh, some truths about how great and merciful our God is uh, from Isaiah 6. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn there uh, in, in your own Bibles to take a look at this passage we'll be looking at together. <clears throat> You know, there's one emphasis in particular that I want to highlight as we go through uh, Isaiah 6 together and look at what we see here about God. And that is, it's very clear as you read this that the transcendence of God precedes the discussion of his imminence. Now, those two terms you may not be familiar with. Uh, transcendence refers to God as other than us, God as great and beyond us. God is independent of the world that he has made. Imminent, on the other hand, refers to God who is with us, a God who cares and is kind and merciful, a God who is uh, for his people. So transcendence is the otherness of God, imminence the nearness of God. And it's very clear as you read Isaiah 6 that the emphasis begins on transcendence. And we marvel at how great and expansive and other God is than we are. And then, only then, can we appreciate the imminence of God, that that great God who is holy, majestic, mighty, is also merciful. So it's important to go in this order. Contemporary Christian culture is marked too often by a rush to imminence. When thinking about God, we default almost always to talking about God's love, grace, mercy, kindness, compassion, goodness, but we do so by bypassing altogether God's glorious and eternal transcendence. By rushing to imminence and missing transcendence, two problems result. First, we don't truly know the fullness of of the God who is loving, etc., because we don't know the awesomeness, the greatness, the fullness and grandeur and glory and otherness of this God who shows such kindness to us. And then second, we don't even rightly know the true nature of God's love, his kindness and his goodness, because we have rushed to embrace this view of love without understanding the one who is so great in his love to us. So my friends, it's very important to understand God first and foremost as the transcendent one, as the platform then for understanding his imminence. And if we don't do this, then we can draw the conclusion, if we rush to imminence, we can draw the conclusion as is so Uh, natural, as it were, in the culture in which we live, that the love of God is expected. The the love of God, of course, should be. We, we, We sing amazing grace, but we don't mean it. We really mean entitled grace, don't we? Because, I mean, after all, look at who we are and how important we are. And so that grace that God gives to us seems to be an entitled grace. But far from it, grace is unmerited favor from a God who should rightly, in his rights, bring to us judgment. But instead, 
shows to us amazingly his mercy. So my friends, I invite you to see this morning the God of transcendence and imminence, of majesty and mercy, of holiness and forgiveness, and in that order as we see in Isaiah 6. So if you take your own Bibles and follow along, I'd like to read Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 8. So we have the passage in mind as we begin this morning. I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Well, let's begin as we look through this passage together at aspects of the majesty, the transcendence of God that we see in particular in verses 1 to 4. Notice the passage begins in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, the date on that, if you want to mark that in terms of when this happens in history, is 740 B.C., 740 B.C. And, of course, this was before then, the Assyrians took the northern kingdom captive that happened in 722 B.C., and long before, the Babylonians took the southern kingdom into captivity at 586 B.C. So Isaiah is writing at this period of time when the northern kingdom is about to fall to the Assyrians. And, uh, and he uh, is, is a prophet warning them of the destruction that is to come. So it is at this time that he receives this prophecy from the Lord. Now, I think, though, that the significance of that opening phrase in the year of King Uzziah's death is more than merely a chronological marker. It does tell us the date. That's, that's true. But it also indicates something else. Because Uzziah, if you remember, in the southern kingdom, they had a mix of both good and bad kings. Now, in the northern kingdom, every king in the north was an evil king, did evil in the sight of the Lord, no exception. But in the southern kingdom, there was a mix. And on balance, Uzziah was one of the good kings. He had obeyed the Lord. He had followed the law of the Lord. And God had blessed his kingship. In fact, some of the greatest military successes that Israel ever experienced were under King Uzziah. However, you might remember that Uzziah ended his life badly. I think of this as I age and, uh, the, you know, the folly of coming to the end and blowing it big time in, in the way Uzziah did. 
he went into the temple to burn incense. And the priests met him there, and they said, no, don't do this. You're a king, not a priest. Now, what's behind this is what? Do you know? The line of the kings and the line of the priests in Israel come from different tribes, right? So the line of the priests come from Levi through Aaron. And so the the Levitical priesthood marks the priests of Israel. But the line of the kings of Israel come from Judah. You might look sometime at at, uh, Genesis 49, where Jacob pronounces blessings upon his sons. And to Judah, he says, the scepter will not depart from you, Judah. The scepter indicating the kingship that will come from Judah. David, of course, the first king of Israel that was ordained by God, not Saul. Saul, by the way, was from the tribe of Benjamin. He could never have been the first of the kings leading to Jesus because he was from the wrong tribe. David was from the tribe of Judah. He was the first king of the lines of the kings of, of uh, Israel and Judah that led to Jesus. <coughs> so Uzziah is from the line of Judah. Priests are from the line of Levi. So he should not function as a priest. So the priest told him this, don't do this, don't burn incense. But he refused to listen to them, went ahead and did this. And you remember what God did to him? He punished him on the spot. He brought leprosy upon Uzziah. And so he was removed from his own people as king for the remaining portion of his life, living in ignominy, in shame as a leper. Okay, so apart from that ending of his life, though, he had been one of the good kings of Israel. And so I wonder if behind this statement in the year of King Uzziah's death is not this connotation. In a time of great uncertainty, when we don't know who the next king is going to be, we don't know how things are going to go politically. We don't know whether the, king, the next king of Israel following Uzziah will be favorable to the prophets of Israel, will want to follow the, the, the ways of the Lord or not. In this time of uncertainty, get the point. I saw the Lord seated on his throne. So the confidence that Isaiah can have knowing that the God of all creation, as we'll see in a moment here, reigns always from his throne, no matter what happens at the human level, who is king at the human level. God is God always on his throne, reigning from on high. So in this time of great uncertainty, I saw the Lord. Look at what he says about the Lord in verse 1. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, just picture in your mind's eye this scene that Isaiah sees. The Lord, this great king on a throne chair, is sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Now, how that throne chair is elevated, we don't know. We don't know if it was on some kind of a pedestal or a platform that was raised up high. Perhaps it was suspended in midair. We just don't know how this was, but it was lofty and exalted. And of course, the the point of that is to indicate his dominion is over all. He has absolute authority over every other king that there is. He is king of kings, lord of lords, as the one who is over all. So the picture of this lofty and exalted throne chair indicates then that he is the greatest of all kings, 
He, he reigns over all that he has made, as we'll see in a moment. The earth is full of his glory, as the seraphim call out. But notice also it says that the train of his robe, evidently he is wearing a royal robe as king, and the train of his robe is so long that it wraps around and around and around and fills the temple in which he sits. Now, what, what do you suppose the significance of a long train of this royal robe would be? Do you have any idea? Well, let me give you an analogy. This is only an analogy, but I think it's a fitting one. I remember, this is many years ago, we were living in Pasadena, California at the time, and my wife asked me before she went to bed that night, before we went to bed that night, she said, honey, do you want me to wake you up for the wedding? And I said, oh, no, dear, you watch the wedding on television, and you can tell me about it in the morning. Well, there came a certain point in this wedding that she could not stand watching it alone. So she came and got me at about 4 a.m., and I came out to look at the TV just in time to see, do you have any idea what wedding this is? To see Lady Diana walking down the center aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral in that glorious wedding gown that she was wearing, and the train of her wedding gown seemed to trail on endlessly behind her. Now, some of you remember seeing that, and, uh, and, and remember, as I do, the, the, the splendor of that moment. Now, why such a long train for that wedding dress, for that bride, for that day? Answer, royalty, splendor, beauty, majesty. That's what is conveyed. And indeed, the same thing is true here. The train of his robe fills the temple. That's how royal, how great, how majestic, how splendor-filled this God is. Now, one more detail in verse 1 that we dare not miss. Oh my goodness, this is just an amazing thing that is here. Notice that this king is sitting on a throne a throne chair. And so obviously we know he's a, he's a king. He has a royal robe on with this train that fills the temple, okay? So we see that. He's a king sitting on a throne chair. But you would expect then, since he's a king sitting on his throne, that he would be seated in what kind of a building? A palace, right? A palace is where a king would be. But notice what building he is seated in. A temple where priests would be. Ah, the irony with Uzziah is thick. Here we have a picture of a future king-priest of Israel, one who will come in the line of David as king, but he will be priest over all of his people. And of course, this is fulfilled only in Jesus, as we see him as the king in the line of David, but priest whose priesthood is established separately from Levi. He's a priest, you remember in the book of Hebrews? He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek rather than Levi. Melchizedek, Hebrews argues, is a superior priesthood to Levi. So indeed, here is a picture of Jesus who will be the king priest of his people. And this is confirmed in John chapter 12, verse 41. You could look at this later where John quotes from this passage, Isaiah 6, and then he says that Isaiah saw him, saw his glory, and spoke of him, namely of Jesus. So John 12 confirms that, in fact, 
The one we see here in this vision is none other than Jesus himself in his pre-incarnate glory as the eternal son of the Father. Moving on to verse 2. Seraphim, we read here, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now this is interesting. These seraphim are glorious, mighty, beautiful, powerful, angelic beings. In all likelihood, created by God for the very purpose of being forever in the presence of the king and honoring and worshiping him as they are doing here. We know from the book of Revelation that this goes on forever and ever. They're crying out of holy, holy, holy. So these seraphim have six wings, and notice what they do with them. With two of them, they cover their face. Now this is amazing because these are holy beings. These are not sinful creatures as we are. I mean, right away you realize how casual our understanding of God is that we think we have the right to be in his presence on our own. That is so wrong, my friends. We have no right to be in his presence. Witness Isaiah in a moment. Woe is me, I am ruined, he says. I have no right to be in the presence of God. But here are these seraphs who don't even have sin, and yet they cover their eyes before him because of the splendor and the majesty and the beauty of this king. They cannot look upon him because of his intense holiness. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. Huh, now what would this be? Well, here's my proposal to you. You know for sure that these seraph are worshiping. They're worshiping God. This is very clear from the very next verse as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. So here is a question. How do, you, how do you portray a posture of worship, which most often in the Bible is a posture of bowing when you're flying around them? And the answer is you have two extra wings that you can put in a bowing posture. So with two of their wings, they cover their feet showing their respect, their humility before this king, honoring him as the king as they bow with their two wings before him. <clears throat> and then with their other two wings, they fly and hover around him. In verse 3, they call out back and forth in constant antiphonal refrain to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, holiness that is indicated here, the main idea of holiness in the Bible is the notion of separation, separation, that God is separate from all of his creation. There's a sense in which God's separateness, his holiness, is first and foremost metaphysical. That is, his very being is separate from all else. He alone is eternal. All, all other things are temporal. He alone is creator. Everything else is created, right? He alone is infinite. Everything else is finite, measured, bounded, limited. But God is unlimited in his fullness. So indeed, the seraph call out before the Lord, holy, 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 a metaphysical perfection, a, 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 a a separateness of his being that sets him apart from everything else that exists. 
in the fullness of his eternal life as God. There is no one like me, declares the Lord. Do you remember that refrain many, many times in the book of Isaiah? So indeed, he is metaphysically separate, but he's also separate from sin. He can have nothing to do with sin. There cannot be sin in his presence. That also is conveyed by the notion of holiness. So you might think of it as metaphysical separateness, the being of God, unique, separate from all that is created, and moral separateness, separate from all things sinful and impure. God alone is separate in both ways, in his being as God and his moral nature. He can have nothing to do with sin. Now, why, why the holy, holy, holy? Why mention it three times? And here I think the, the most likely answer is this. In the Hebrew language, the way that you express a superlative, the greatest, the best, the most, is with a single repetition of a term. So, for example, the greatest king is expressed in Hebrew with a repetition of the word king, king, king. The way we translate that in our English Bibles is king of kings. So the king, king, or king of kings is the greatest king, okay? And that's true with other ways, uh, other expressions of a superlative. Now, here you have in the in, in, the, in this text, a unique case where there is a double repetition. You don't find this anywhere else except for when this passage is quoted in other portions of the Bible. You have not, not just holy, holy, like king, king, greatest king, holiest being. You have holy, holy, holy. It is as though the writer has to break the confines of human language to express the infinite fullness, the, the, the immeasurable greatness of the holiness of God. It cannot be rightly expressed in human language. So he breaks the, the, the grammatical, as it were, uh, uh, boundaries in order to express how holy God is. So he is infinitely holy. And he is the one whose very nature is manifest in all of creation. As we read in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and hence the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, verse 4, there's a little bit more here (coughs) that we want to see. In verse 4, we read two more details of what Isaiah sees in this vision. The foundations of the thresholds trembled, at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So two things we want to think about here. First of all, is that the the very foundation stones of this great temple building are trembling as these seraphs call back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy. As they do this, the foundation stones tremble. Now think about it for a moment. I, I bet you have had an experience like I have, I've been, I've been to a loud concert. This goes back many years. I don't like to go to them anymore. But I remember as a kid going to some loud concerts where the windows would rattle. I remember one time there was no seating left by the time I got there, so I had to stand against the wall, and I could feel that wall vibrate a bit as that bass guitar was being played at volume 20, right? You know, so, I, you know, so the, the, the building in one sense was trembling a bit, but... The foundation stones, 
Wow, can you imagine the volume and intensity that there had to have been for the foundation stones of that temple to tremble? You know what this indicates? The intensity of worship that is being expressed by this, these seraphim. Oh, how passionate they are about the worship of this great, glorious, majestic God who is worthy of their highest expression of praise. It gives you a little taste of what it's going to be like in heaven. I mean, what an amazing thing it is going to be when we are shed from our sin and from our inhibitions and we see the King of Kings and we worship him. Well, the seraph are doing that here with great intensity. And then the last phrase in verse 4, while the temple was filling with smoke. What is this smoke? Well, if you look at commentaries on the book of Isaiah, they'll tell you this, that oftentimes when God is depicted in his glory, there is smoke present. For example, at Mount Sinai, when God revealed the law to Moses, the top of the mountain was covered in smoke. And so I have no doubt that's part of what is being communicated here, but I don't think that's the whole of it. Here, here's my thought, is that there is another item in this temple building where our king is, uh, that is that hasn't been mentioned to us yet, but we learn about it in the following verses. Can you see what it is? Look ahead. What is there in this temple that would emit smoke? Do you see it? An altar with burning coals. So here's my thought, is that in this temple is an altar with coals that are burning away, and as those coals burn, they, they emit smoke that fill this temple. And, and what's the point of that? What, what's the point of the symbolism of the smoke then? Well, what those coals represent, we know from what's about to happen, is they represent purity. Purity. Because one of the seraphim takes one of these coals and touches Isaiah's lips with it, and he says, your sin is forgiven. So there is this purification that takes place by those coals. So my thought is this. The very last phrase before verse 5, when Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am ruined. The very last phrase is, The temple was filling with smoke, indicating the pervasive purity of God. He cannot abide sin. Sin cannot be in his presence. Hence, the significance then of Isaiah's response. Look with me at verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice three things with me real quickly. First of all, notice he does not say, woe is me, for I have a few problems. You know, a few things that if I can find a good self-help manual, I can fix these things. You know, this is not what he says. He doesn't indicate there's a few little things to take care of in my life, but rather the whole of me is ruined before God. I, I have no hope at all. I, I, before God, I am a destitute sinner who cannot do anything about my sin. And notice, secondly, that he sees himself as equivalent with all of the people around him, which is a remarkable thing. Remember what he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, right? Well, this is an amazing statement from Isaiah, 
to put himself at the same level with everybody else as, as a sinner because he's a prophet of God who is proclaiming the word of God to a rebellious, disobedient people. If anyone had a right to say, you know what, on balance, I'm doing a lot better than they are, Isaiah had that right. Absolutely. But, point three, he has seen the Lord. For my eyes have seen his glory. At the end of verse five, the, the, the four, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, indicates the reason Isaiah is able to understand the depth and breadth and horror of his sin is precisely because he has seen the great height and greatness and majesty of God's holiness. My friends, if we don't see the holiness of God God, rightly, we will never comprehend how destitute we are as sinners before him, and then we will not comprehend the significance of mercy when it is shown to us. You see the order here. Holiness, sin, mercy, it goes in that order. And honestly, in our churches across America, so many of our churches don't talk about the holiness of God, don't talk about our sin. All they talk about is God's kindness and goodness and love and, and compassion and, you know, all of these things. And so we do not comprehend how horridly unworthy we are before this gloriously holy God who apart from his mercy, we would have no place before him. We would be shunned by him forever were it not for his mercy. So Isaiah understands the horror of his own sin only because he has seen the greatness of God's holiness. Now, moving ahead from verses 1 to 5 on now to the imminent mercy of God in verses 6 and 7. Let me read these verses again. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, here is an amazing thing, my friends, that, that, that God initiates mercy to this unworthy, sinful uh, man who is before him, Isaiah, God is the one who does this. Isaiah doesn't, uh, doesn't elicit this mercy. This is freely given by God. He sends this seraph to come and, and apply the coal to Isaiah's lips. We always must remember that the saving grace of God is in his prerogative altogether. Do you know this? That God doesn't have to save anyone. You know, this passage could have ended at the end of verse 5. God is holy, Isaiah is a corrupt sinner, end of discussion. No hope for Isaiah, period. That could be the way the story goes. The fact that there's a verse 6 with God sending a seraphim to, to, to come and touch Isaiah's lips and bring him forgiveness is sheer unmerited kindness of God. We do not deserve such lavish mercy and grace that is given to us. By the way, if you, if you struggle with that statement I made a moment ago, God is not obligated to save, think for a moment about fallen angels. There is no salvation plan for fallen angels. Isn't that amazing? 
They, they have fallen with Satan. And according to Jesus in Matthew 25, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. No salvation plan. We know that from Hebrews 2. He, he saves the sons of Abraham, but not angels, he says, referring to fallen angels in Hebrews 2. So indeed, God is not obligated to save. That he does save is sheerly of his mercy. Don't you hear echoes of this in Romans chapter 9? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Compassion on whom I have compassion. Don't think for one moment God's hands are tied in this, that he has to do it. Oh, no, that he does it is sheer love, kindness that he need not have done. But indeed, he has chosen in his kindness to do so. So he comes to Isaiah. God is the initiator in this. Secondly, notice the means of mercy. This purification that comes is personalized. Now, here's what I mean by that, personalized. Do you remember what Isaiah said in verse 5? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So what does God do? He sends a seraph to come and touch his lips, right? Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't know why Isaiah said unclean lips. I, I, you know, honestly, he could have said I'm a man of, unclean, of an unclean mind, unclean hands, unclean feet. I mean, there's lots of things. We're all unclean in all, all of who we are. But he, he said lips for whatever reason. My hunch is, this is only a hunch, my hunch is he said lips because he knows the principle out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he knows this is the case, that our mouths betray the crud and also, by God's grace, the goodness uh, of our inner lives. So, <coughs> knowing his own sin through what he has said, perhaps that is why he said this. But in any case, that's what he said. I'm a man of unclean lips. So what does God do? He comes and administers the forgiveness to him by touching his lips, as if to say, I have a cure for your disease. I have forgiveness for your sin, personalized. You know that's true for you and me as well? You know, sin is forgiven by God, not as some general thing, but specific sins. Your sins are forgiven by God. My sins are forgiven. He has forgiveness that matches every one of our sins. As we confess our sins and trust in Christ, we too receive this same forgiveness, personalized forgiveness. And finally, notice the goal of this mercy is restoration and service. <clears throat> so indeed, after his sins are taken away, I'm just amazed at this. God does not say to Isaiah, okay, Isaiah, I've now forgiven you, and just get out of my sight and don't bother me again. You know, I, you, you could almost understand if he were to say that. But instead, he says, who shall I send? Who will go for me? And, 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 and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. So indeed, the goal of this mercy is restoration, forgiveness to his own life and service in the kingdom, which brings us to the last part of Isaiah. We won't read verses uh, 9 to 13, but in those verses, we read there of the ministry to which God calls Isaiah that is really difficult. Let me summarize it for you this way. These are verses 9 to 13. I'm going to send you to a people who has ears that will hate what you say 
and hearts that despise your teaching. They will give you no pats on the back. Thank you, Pastor, for, for that good message you gave. They will give you slaps in the face for what you say to them. They will hate what you say. Now, not every one of them. There will be a remnant, says God. There's hope at the end of that chapter. But for the most part, they will hate what you say. And the reason God calls him to minister the truth to these people who will hate it, you might think God would say, well, forget it. They're not going to hear, so forget it. Why does he send Isaiah to proclaim the truth? So their response of rejection will bear, will bear witness to the legitimacy of the judgment that is about to come upon them. That's why. Wow, this is sobering. God is vindicated in sending the Assyrians to judge these people because of their rejection of the word that he brought to them through his prophets. And Isaiah is one of those. So this is a very difficult service. Willing service flows out of this knowledge of God, knowing the majesty and mercy of God propels one into service, and then perseverance in that difficult service flows out of this knowledge of God. He is worthy of being served with every fiber of my being in obedience and faithfulness for the whole of life because of what a great God he is. So my friends this morning, let me ask you as we close, do you know God both as transcendent and imminent? Or have you, with so much of the Christian culture of which we are a part, have you rushed to imminence and forgot about transcendence, greatness, majesty, might, glory, independence, self-existence, eternity of God, a God who does not need the creation he has made? in whole or in any part. To, to understand God for who he is in the fullness of his eternal being then allows you to marvel at the fact that God, can you believe it, has shown such kindness to the likes of you and me. How much kindness? How much love? How much mercy? In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the satisfaction of his wrath against us, the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins. Now it's 1 John 4, 10, 9, 10, <laughs> one of those. Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? What lavish love from this God who is gloriously independent. Amazing love. God has shown unworthy, undeserving sinners who are given his grace and mercy to forgive and restore and bless forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning to contemplate something of your greatness and glory from Isaiah 6. We marvel at who you are in the fullness of your being apart from creation 
and your love that you express to us, your own creatures. Thank you, Lord God. We pray that you would fill our hearts with awe and wonder and worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.